Hi guys, welcome back or just welcome to Unclipped. I am your host, Imani Brown, um, and we're on our third episode. Um, so just right out of the gate, I kind of want to uh, set a disclaimer here, a trigger warning um, for uh, the, this episode is going to include themes uh, regarding domestic violence and abuse and suicide um, and suicidal ideation. So if those are things that you don't think you can handle right now, I want you to protect yourself and protect your peace and um, skip this episode. Uh, and I'll see you in another one um, next Thursday. Um, but if you are still here, um, I'm also going to give a disclaimer that I will be looking at my laptop quite a few times um, while I'm talking today because uh, I'm going to be talking about a subject that has um, caused me a lot of psychological trauma and with that psychological trauma comes huge lapses in memory um, so timelines are kind of blurry to me sometimes um, so I kind of wrote it out all in a document and I'm going to be referring to it to make sure that I don't uh, skip anything in the timeline or um, misplace something in the timeline. So I'm here to tell my story about domestic violence. It is October and that means it is Domestic Violence Awareness Month and unfortunately I um, have a personal connection with that and I hope that through my story and um, me being vulnerable that I could possibly help somebody out. So um, I was in a relationship with an individual from uh, about the age of 15 or 16 to um, when I was like 20, about to turn 21. So um, about five years I was with this person. I met them on the internet. I know. And guys, this is like really embarrassing. I met them on Omegle. So if you're a younger millennial or older Gen Z, you know, like Omegle was our shit. Um, but I met him on Omegle um, and we exchanged uh, Facebook information. So we added each other on Facebook after we met on Omegle and we started chatting back and forth. And I remember thinking that I felt incredibly bad for him. He, uh, told me stories about how he was bullied and that he was on the internet a lot because he didn't have any real life friends and he would eat lunch in the bathroom and you know hindsight's twenty twenty, like he was describing fake stuff I, I don't think people eat in the bathroom I think that's only on movies and stuff um but yeah he told me this really sad story about how he didn't have friends and I felt incredibly bad for him so we became friends and eventually we started chatting pretty much every day. Like he'd call me um, and we'd chat for hours after school. Um, and some way it developed into us being boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, despite the fact that we had never met in person yet. Like Jesus Christ, Imani. This is like kind of embarrassing to tell. Like... It's actually really embarrassing, but whatever. I'm being vulnerable here. Um, but we had never met in person. And then a couple months later, his mom, um, him, his mom, and his brother flew up to New York City to visit me. So he was from Alabama and I was from New York City. 
Um, and I remember like the night that they got there, it was like snowing outside and I, did I think I was in a Hallmark movie or something? I don't know, but my, I was getting dressed. My mom's like, you're not going to meet them. And I'm like, yes, I am. Mom, I'm in love, blah, blah, blah. And like I said, hindsight's 2020. My mom was absolutely right. What mother in her right mind would bring her 16 year old son, spend tens of thousands of dollars, right? To bring her 16 year old son to New York City to meet some girl he met on the internet. Like that's kind of psycho. Um, but when I was a teenager, I thought it was just a perfect love story. And my mom just wanted to get in between us. Not the case. Uh, but yeah, so we meet a couple months into our relationship and um, he was very sweet. A little a little eerily sweet now um, that I think back to it, but he he was, he seemed really kind. Um, and then after that, over the, the next couple years, he would come visit me like every six months. Um, and then it came the time to, uh, apply to college and I applied to 36 schools. Like, that's embarrassing, but (laughs) I thought I wasn't going to get into college. I had this like weird, like anxiety about getting into college even though my stats were really good I just swore that I wasn't going to get into college so I applied to a ton of schools um and pretty much they were all kind of um in the northeastern area since that's where I'm from um but I thought about the fact that I wanted to be closer to my now ex um in like geographic wise um And so I'm like, how do I get closer to him without my mom like picking up on the fact that I'm trying to be closer to him because I couldn't apply to a school in Alabama. That would be like that would put her on a high alert. She was not going to let me go to a school in Alabama. So I'm like, I I have to apply somewhere within like a couple hours of Alabama, but like not too close. So one day I remember my brother was look was watching TV. He plays basketball, so he always watched basketball. And Kentucky, the University of Kentucky was playing. And I, remember I went in his room and I was like, hey, is that a good school? And he's like, it's okay. And I went and applied to the University of Kentucky. Um, so fast forward in, uh, to acceptances, I pretty much decided where I was going to go. It was a, a small private college in upstate New York, and I got a juicy-ass scholarship Um I pretty much was going to have to pay for nothing. Um, I would be set. But then a couple days later, a big blue envelope comes in the mail. And it's an acceptance from the University of Kentucky. And what do I do? I decide I'm going to take my ass to Kentucky. Um, so, you know, at this point, it's it's official. I'm going to be moving to Kentucky to attend college. And he decided college wasn't for him and that he was going to enroll in the military. So I just remember like doing so much for this relationship and, and sometimes I feel stupid, but then I, I have to learn to give myself grace. First of all, I was young. And second of all, like it was good. Like it was good in the beginning. Like it, I really looking back, I couldn't, I can't see things that were like solid red flags like these first the first couple years. 
Um, and I'm not sure if that was him purposefully hiding it or it was because we had a large geographical barrier uh, between us those first couple years. Um, it might be a mix of both, but either way, there was there weren't any like things that even now would put me on super high alert um, for somebody to be abusive towards me. Um, so I go visit him um, for his boot camp graduation, and I'm so freaking dumb that I his boot camp graduation was the day before I was supposed to, my family was supposed to drive down to Kentucky to drop me off to school. Um, and I lied to my mom and told her that I was flying back to New York um, from his boot camp graduation that the night it ended. But in reality, my flight was the next morning. And so I decided I was going to lie and be like, oh my gosh, my flight got delayed. She knew my flight number. So she knew I was a liar. <laughs> um, so I remember getting back um, and my whole family was waiting for me with the car all packed up. Um, and they were pissed off. But anyways, uh, I remember heading down to Kentucky with my family and I'm like, this is like the start of the rest of my life, right? Like, I'm going to be closer to my boyfriend. I'm going to be in school in Kentucky. Like, it's going to be great. It's a nightmare. So throughout my freshman year, um, I would, for breaks, I would either go back home to New York or like for shorter breaks, I'd um, go to Alabama where his family was. Um, and they lived in a small town about an hour and a half outside of Birmingham. Um, and when I went to visit, I noticed there were like no people who looked like me, if you know what I mean. There were, there were no black people, uh, which is not weird to me because obviously the majority of people that exist are white well in America are white um so that right there wasn't anything that put me on high alert but I remember the vibes being off like that's that's the only way I can explain it like anytime I went anywhere in that town the vibes were just off and I didn't want to stereotype like oh it's Alabama it's racist but I found out like a year ago that his town is legitimately like one of the like still sundown towns. And I'm like, what? They had my black ass in a sundown town. They had him and his family had to have wanted me dead because there's no way that they didn't know that they lived in a sundown town from visiting his um, home as well. I noticed I started to notice like a weird dynamic. Um, I'm trying not to talk shit, but I, I'm just going to say what I observed um, in the home and how I think that translates to what happened to me. Um, his dad, let's, I, I don't want to be mean, but I might have to be because they did raise their devil of a child. His dad was like lazy and mean. So like he would like make his mom do stuff he would just be like sitting in his recliner after work and like ordering his mom to like do stuff um so I thought that was weird um and it kind of foreshadowed the type of dynamic that my ex I guess would um expect from a relationship so while my ex was in the military he struggled with his mental health um a lot uh and because of that for Thanksgiving of that year um, I spent it visiting him in an inpatient psychiatric facility on a military base. 
uh, he got admitted to an inpatient program um, in the military because I think he was threatening suicide. I'm not very clear on what exactly happened because he was kind of evading the question and like pretty much lying and I didn't want to push his button. So I just kind of dropped it, but it's for what he ended up in there for what I'm assuming is a suicide threat. Um, and I remember feeling incredibly bad for him at that point. I didn't know what it felt like to really struggle, um, with like depression, um, or suicidal ideation. So I, I felt incredibly bad for him and I wanted to be there to support him. But now looking back, I don't think that's what he was going through. Um, I think that the suicide threats, uh, were empty I don't think it was ever going to happen I don't think at any point in time in the past that he was going to end his own life um I think he used it to manipulate people so he gets out of the inpatient psychiatric facility um and is like readmitted to his training program he had like a technical job in the military so he had I think it's called AIT um he failed it that first time and then he got put in the inpatient facility um, and they let him restart it two more times and it clearly wasn't something that he could handle Um, so eventually he got discharged from the military uh, for psychiatric reasons but they ended up giving him an honorable discharge he was only in for about six months towards the end of his um career (laughs) six months in the military was the first instance of me sort of seeing like strong red flags so we were on the phone I don't know what we were talking about but he said I should deck you like verbatim I should deck you and like it was like a joke but I remember like being taken aback because he had never joked like that before um so I was taken aback at first and then I kind of just like let it go because I was like, he's, he's just kidding. So he got discharged from the military. He moved back to Alabama with his family and he had like little delivery driver jobs here and there. And then um, the plan was that he was going to move up to Kentucky um, that next summer. Um, yeah. He was going to move up to Kentucky that next summer. And his mother was like really pushing for him to move, like hardcore pushing for him to move. And that's the second like strong red flag um, that I think that I should have noticed. You know, I'm going to stop saying that. There was no way for me to know. But his mom was like really trying to get him out of her house and push him onto me. So we go like look at it, tour apartments and everything. And at that time, I didn't have a job because I was only a freshman in college and I was living in the dorm. So I didn't need to have a job. Like if I needed extra money, I would just ask my parents. There shouldn't have been anything I needed to have a job for in reality. So I didn't. And so I didn't have any money. But his mom volunteered to like pay the security deposit, first month's rent, first month's like utilities, crazy. Like she was volunteering to pay for everything. Um, and as a 27 year old, I can see now how that's, uh, like kind of like I'm side eyeing it, but, um, as an 18, 19 year old, there was, I, I could, I just saw that as good. Um, so he, we signed a lease together and he moved down, he moved up to Kentucky that like later that summer. So 
initially at the very beginning when we moved in together everything was good but like shortly after the move in things started to get mentally and emotionally abusive um he started to manipulate me to get things that he wanted he started to threaten me um with him hurting himself if he didn't get what he wanted uh and in an effort for me to get out of the house and just do more things on my own or with other people that I would enjoy doing things with I joined a sorority and that is probably the best thing that I did at that point in time because I think it really helped me uh move forward after the relationship ended um so yeah I joined a sorority and then shortly after that he started to get physically abusive another thing to note um about him is that he's okay if you haven't caught my drift yet he's literally a shitty like he's so shitty um he's shitty he's irresponsible um yeah he's just not a good person um he when, when he moved to lexington he wasn't in school at the time um so he just all he had to do was work and he could not keep a job for the life of him. But somehow every time he'd get fired, he'd get a new job within like three days. And I don't understand how that happens, but he just like was a serial job hopper and like not in the good way, not in the way that he had anything valuable to offer a job. He just somehow convinced them to hire him after he got him fired from everywhere else in town. Um, but it's important to note that I was already enrolled. I was still enrolled in school and I was also working two jobs, one at Wet Seal, RIP Wet Seal, and one at Chili's as a server. So like I said in the beginning, um, because of the psychological toll that the abuse took on me, um, I still suffer uh, from a lot of memory loss uh, because it's just a trauma response. So the details of the first time that he hit me are very like foggy. If I'm being honest, I don't remember the event. Like, I don't remember when it happened, but I remember my feelings around it. I remember feeling like it wasn't real, like it had to be a dream Um, because you go, you know, I want my life up until then um, thinking that that could never be me. I had never seen an instance of like physical abuse in my household or in anybody's household that I knew. So physical abuse to me seemed like something that couldn't happen to me because I had never seen it. Like it seemed like something that I possibly saw people on TV go through, um, but it couldn't affect me in real life. And I know it sounds naive, but it was just difficult for me to wrap my head around the fact that somebody can claim to love you, but also put their hands on you. Those two didn't go together in my brain. It's like one moment I'm the girl watching TV, watching someone talk about being physically abused and questioning why they just don't leave. And then the next moment I am that girl on TV, um, not leaving their physical abuser. One particular incident uh, that I remember was um, I was braiding my hair and the, I think the only reason I remember it is because it's tied to like a significant event. Um, outside of the relationship, it was actually like the um, election day between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And I was watching it on my phone, like so stressed out. And I was also braiding my hair. Um, and I finished my hair before the results uh, 
came in. So I decided I was going to lay down and I don't remember what I did to make him angry. Um, but apparently I did something and he grabbed my braids and like drug me to the ground. And then with the same hand that he had my braids in, he punched me in the face and, um, my teeth dug into my cheek and kind of created a couple gashes there. I have some photos of that, but that was one of the first instances that I can remember, um, him putting his hands on me. Another instance that, um, I remember was when the abuse had been going on for a while. Um, and while he was in the shower after, you know, a particular, I guess I'll call it episode. Um, I decided I was going to escape to a hotel somewhere because I just need to be out of his presence. I need to figure out what I was going to do. Um, so I went to a hotel and then he obviously proceeded to blow up my phone, um, text calls. And then he pulls the, the suicide card. He told me that if I didn't tell him where I was, that he was going to kill himself. And so what did I do? I told him where I was. Um, he came to the room and he continued to physically abuse me. And I just suffered in silence because I thought if I made a sound that it was embarrassing. If somebody heard what was going on, I would be embarrassed. That's kind of hard to talk about because... Um, I feel for the girl that I was then. I feel incredibly bad and I wish that she knew that it's not embarrassing to get help. It's not embarrassing to admit that you're being abused. The abuser should be embarrassed, not the victim. So that night, I probably got a couple hours of sleep because um, he kept waking me up to berate me and physically assault me the next day was one of my best friends baby well the next day was the day that my friend was going to pick me up because her baby shower was a day after that um she lives about two and a half hours away from me so I was just going to spend the night at her house um and then go to a baby shower the next day and I remember getting home and changing and obviously I did something again to piss him off and he like pushed me onto the bed and started choking me. Uh, and that was one of the first instances where I really, really, really thought I was going to die. I remember looking up into his eyes and seeing nothing. And I, I'm not sure that I can explain to you what it feels like um, to look into the eyes of somebody who is supposed to love you. Um, somebody who's supposed to be the opposite of bad to you and see nothing. It, it, that was almost scarier than what was physically being done to me. Um, because I've never looked in someone's eyes and saw nothing. Uh, and in that moment, I, I knew I was fighting for my life. Um, so I grabbed a lamp that was on the nightstand next to me and I smashed it on his head. Um, and I didn't know at that point if that was just going to make him more angry or, or if it was going to get the attack to stop. It ended up getting the attack to stop. Um, but my friend was 10 minutes away about to pick me up. So I had to clean up the glass and act like nothing happened, um, before that.
So a few months later, he enrolled in one of the local community colleges. And of course, he got that for free, right? Because he got his GI Bill for serving our country. Um, But he enrolled in school, which meant he was going to cut back on work hours. And in turn, he decided that he thought I needed to drop my sorority because it was costing us a lot of extra money that we didn't have. Um, And through all that, through him trying to act like he was being financially responsible he was taking out credit cards and loans in my name um i had considered dropping the sorority because he was very good at convincing me that it wasn't good for me but something told me to hold on to it and i'm so glad that i did that was the point where i really uh, my other relationships really started to suffer and i started to um, suffer significantly I stopped calling my family I stopped really hanging out with my friends um, first of all I didn't have time to I was working two jobs and taking 20 credit hours uh, so there was not really time for me to speak to anyone and the second reason was because I feared that they would be able to tell that something was wrong when I started speaking to them and the third reason was because he sort of like made me he strategically isolated me from the people who actually cared about me he convinced me that they did not care about me I also wasn't getting much sleep um, because of course between everything that I was involved in I, I had to do his homework as well and I had to cook um, for both the both of us and clean and and do everything so I was averaging about three to four hours a night um, of sleeping and the sleep wasn't even like real sleep because I every time I closed my eyes I feared that it would be the last time that I closed my eyes I feared that he would do something to me in my sleep so I I didn't sleep well I also gained a significant amount of weight and my grades started to slip. Um, At this point, I was getting closer to my breaking point. It was pretty much every other day or every day that he was pulling out knives or what have you, threatening to kill himself, kill both of us, beating, biting, berating me. um, And it got really overwhelming very quickly. And so at this point... Um, sorry. At this point, I remember just not wanting to be here anymore. Um, I remember asking God to just let him kill me, um, and let it be as painless, um, as possible, because if that was going to be my life, I didn't want to be here anymore and I didn't see a way out. So um, the only way out I saw was me ceasing to exist. I truly felt that I, I had nothing left in me um, to keep fighting. I, I was convinced that it, that was the end. Shortly after that, um, an instance I remember of him uh, being on top of me again and choking me. Uh, I remember sort of like almost losing consciousness. Like I kind of went in and out. And at that point, wherever this fight came from, wherever this, I realized I had a will to live. And I realized that I had to make a choice. It was either going to be him or me. And I, 
I, I chose myself. Um, so I don't know how, but I got the strength to overpower him and flip him over so that I was on top of him. And just as he had his hands around my neck, I did the same to him, um, to defend my life. And I remember like getting on top of him and my hands around his neck. And then I blacked out for a minute. Um, and then the next thing I remember, I'm looking at him and his skin is losing color. Um, and then in that moment, I realized that part of choosing me was also not going to prison because I know we know how the story goes. Um, a woman kills or hurts her abuser and she's the one that goes to jail because she didn't report it. She didn't tell anybody before that. Nobody believes her. Um, so I decided that part of choosing me was to um, let go. Um, and that could have gone south for me. I mean, that could have been the end of my life after that, because he was very, very, very angry. After another really bad fight, um, I remember thinking that I might be ready to tell someone what is happening to me because I really, I I need a chance to get out. I didn't want to tell my family because um, I didn't want them to possibly do something that they might regret later. So uh, I chose to call his mother. Now, I had work later that day, but I needed to get out of the house again because I was fearing for my life after an abusive event. And so I called an Uber. I packed my work clothes up, called an Uber, and I was on my way to Starbucks for a few hours. And then I was going to head to work. Um, so I call his mother and I, I, I told her this was the first time I was telling anybody, um, that I was being abused and we had some sort of conversation. I can't really remember the details, but I remember her telling me that she was going to hang up and because he was calling her and that she was going to call me back. Um, so a couple minutes go by and she calls me back (sighs) And she proceeds to tell me that he says that I hit him also. And I admit, yes, I hit him back. Um, do, am I just supposed to be a punching bag? And she said, you know, I think you both are wrong. Like you might just be toxic for each other. Like you need to sit down and like have a talk. And I remember just being shocked. So because I wasn't the perfect victim, because I hit him back, I, I just was no longer a victim in her eyes. We just needed to talk it out. Her son was hitting me, biting me, threatening me with weapons. And suddenly I'm an equal to him. I, I could not believe what I was hearing. Um, and in that moment, I knew that the fight that I had to continue was going to be on my own. Um. I called her a dumb bitch and I hung up the phone. Um, But that probably was also one of the lowest moments of my life because I decided that I was going to tell somebody. That takes a lot. If you haven't been through it, you don't know how much it takes to, to just tell somebody what you're going through. And I mistakenly thought that, um, she was somebody like my mom would be like if somebody came to my mother and I had done something to them um and I had made them a victim she would not side with me because that's not something she stands for but um apparently his mother uh condones and I guess encourages violence against people especially if they you know retaliate um but 
that uh, was a very difficult moment. Um, so the abuse continued uh, for months. And um, after one pretty bad incident, I remember um, crying so hard. I have the cries that I used to let out are like, I I can hear them. They're painful. They're like when you cry from like your belly. I, I can't explain it, but like I was hurting so badly. I was hurting so badly. And all I could do was cry. Um, And I remember uh, I, I asked God, I said, God, whatever you have to do to get me out of the situation, you do it. I said, I have to get out whatever you have to do, do it. Um, and then it happened shortly after that. I um, had a full mental breakdown, was a non-functional person um, mentally, and I had to medically withdraw from school and head back home to New York. So I went to New York and got some really intense rehabilitation um, and incredible support from teams of professionals in my family um and uh he still tried to maintain control of me even with a geographical barrier but luckily the barrier was enough for the control to be released um at this point I still hadn't told anybody else what was happening to me and my family has a long time family therapist and I remember going to her and she was really confused like she She's obviously a professional, so she's asking me, like, did something happen to you? And I'm like, no. And she's confused as to how I could just have this huge mental breakdown out of nowhere and, like, nothing happened to me. Um, so, you know, through our sessions, she continued to um, try to get the truth out of me, and um, eventually she did. Um, and I told her, and then... I, I decided I needed to tell my family um, and telling my family, telling my mom, telling my dad that I was being physically assaulted, mentally abused on a daily basis was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Telling my brother, like when I went to tell them. I couldn't even get the words out of my mouth. Um, I remember like standing there um, for like a few minutes and I, I couldn't speak. And they're like, what? Like spit it out. And I'm like, just please give me a moment. Um, but the faces that um, I saw when I told them w w was something I'll, I'll never forget. Um, I I felt like I felt them and I knew that they didn't that they didn't feel like I failed them. I knew that they felt like they failed as my support system because they should have gotten me out or they should have known something. And and none of us did anything wrong. There was only one person in this situation that was wrong and it was the person that abused me. Again, like I said, while I was back in New York, he tried to keep control, but um, I was so um, mentally gone pretty much that um, I didn't even use my phone um, I, 
I'll probably get into detail about sort of my mental health journey in another episode. But in short, like I said, I was a non-functional member of society. Um, I would have thousands of panic attacks back to back to back all day. Um, I didn't sleep. Uh, I was on antipsychotics, SSRIs, uh, a plethora of uh, things, sedatives, um, and I basically had to be watched 24-7 by my family members. Um, So I didn't really use my phone that summer, and I would just turn it on every, like, week or so to check my messages. Um, And I remember one message. I I remember, even though I was, like, mentally kind of gone, I knew that I was not returning to that relationship. And I thought I wasn't returning back to Kentucky or school anymore, but I saw a psychiatrist that I fucking hated in the beginning. I hated her. Oh my gosh. I remember going to the first appointment and I was like, mom, I, she's not going to help me. I absolutely hate her. She was like so monotonous and like, I felt like she didn't understand what I was going through because I was saying, you know, I don't think I'm going to be able to go back to school and she said yes you are and I'm like lady do you not understand what I'm going through like I can't even like read a sentence without having a panic attack how am I gonna go back to school but yeah I hated her but she ended up being right um I I stuck with it though thankfully but um I lost my train of thought oh I didn't think I was gonna return back to Kentucky uh when and when abusers or manipulators think that they're losing control they start to make very um rash decisions they start to make decisions quickly and a little bit sloppily um and that worked to my advantage he knew that I wanted a second bedroom for a while because I had so many clothes that I needed like a bedroom for a closet and so he went ahead in order to try to get me back and moved all of our shit into a two-bedroom apartment but you know what that meant that my name was no longer on a lease binding me to any apartment in Kentucky Um, And that right there was like the little glimmer of hope that I needed to keep moving forward. He, without knowing, released his control over me um, because I had nothing legally binding me to any sort of contract with him um, since that was a new apartment. So as I started to get better over the summer, I, I really started to believe my psychiatrist in her saying that I could return back to school um, in the fall semester. But the problem was I did not have a place to live. And here in comes my sorority. Um, So I didn't drop the sorority. And something told me just message the president. um, And I kind of told her my situation. And I asked if there were somehow any rooms left in the house for um, move-in in the fall and lo and behold there was a room um and so I decided I was going to return back to school and live in my sorority house the funny thing is um we have a way of sort of like unconsciously knowing where we're going to end up because the year before that um when during rush season I remember a, a PNM asking me like oh do you live in the house and I'm like no but I really want to and I'm like I'll probably live here next year. And like, I didn't think I was going to live there next year. I was kind of just making something up, but I ended up living there next year. Um, So it's just kind of crazy how we kind of know things before they happen uh, without actually knowing that we know those things. 
Um, so I moved back to Lexington, moved into my sorority house and I, you know, I began getting so many texts from him. Um, but I was done. I mean, I left all my shit there. I started over from nothing. I didn't care. I was free from him. Um, and so because he lost control, he began to visit places that I, that I used to be at. He started visiting my old, um, workplaces. He visited Chili's, um, and demanded that he speak to me, even though I didn't work there anymore. And I only know that because somebody from Chili's messaged me and was like, Hey, I think this is your ex. Like, what do I do? And I told them to call the police because, um, I feared that he, um, would harm other people. Um, not just only me at this point. He also somehow found out that I lived in the sorority house. Now that I think about it, I he um, probably, he had some of my long, login information still um, for a few of my email addresses because they were on um, the iMac that we shared. And so I'm sure he saw, saw the email correspondence between me and the sorority president at the time. So he found out where I lived and he visited and I decided I was going to call the campus police about that and, and file a report. Um... So I felt, I went down to the station actually, and I had a few friends with me that were incredibly supportive and I was just explaining to the officers what was going on. And I remember them asking, you know, questions about previous abuse. So at this point, the only people who knew that I had been abused were my family and my family therapist. I had not told my friends yet. So my friends are at the police station with me and, and the question comes up, did he physically abuse you? And I, I remember pausing and then saying no, because that's not the way I wanted to tell my friends. And I was still somehow like embarrassed for whatever reason. Um, I don't think the cops believed me. I think they knew I was lying. And I think my friends knew I was lying about not being physically abused because I can't hide like <laughs> the truth for shit. Like it shows on my face and everything. And, and that pause, I think, was incredibly telling. Um, but... Uh, both officers gave me their cards and I um, emailed one of the officers later on and admitted that I um, withheld the truth and that I was actually uh, physically abused by my ex. Um, and so we, you know, went back and forth with email correspondence and he suggested that I f- suggested that I file an emergency protective order against my ex. Um, and so while we had email correspondence, uh, this is another reason that leads me to believe that he, um, found out where I lived from my email. My ex hacked my email and sent in like in the thread of emails between me and the officer, he sent an email that was like, Oh, sorry, officer. Like I lied. He didn't actually hit me. Like, I'm just jealous because he has a new girlfriend, blah, blah, blah. And guys, he needs to be fucking for real because all I had to do was go on Google and like you can find out what IP address was logged into your Google account at one time. And that IP address had not been used on my Google account for like months. Um, So it was clearly not my IP address. And uh, I knew it was the IP address of the iMac that him and I shared. Additionally, the syntax and just... The way that it was written as a whole, it was written like a first grader wrote it. There was like no periods. 
Um, there was pretty much no punctuation at all. Nothing was capitalized. Um, it didn't read like something I would write. So it was very clear that I did not write that. Um, so the officer told me to come visit him at the police station rather than have these emails because it was clear that my email was compromised. So I talked to that cop and a detective actually. Um, and, uh, I want to just give like a shout out and some props to the police officers at the University of Kentucky. Um, to me, they are examples of what police officers should be. Um, and I think that they truly care about the University of Kentucky community and the students, um, their safety and, and wellness, because they really showed that through um, handling my situation and helping me handle it. So they kind of walked me through the steps of like filing an emergency protective order in that night. Um, my friend drove me down to the courthouse and I filed it. Um, and on an emergency protective order form, um, or like petition to whatever, but they asked you to like, you know, describe some instances of, of why you fear for your life and stuff. And, and, um, that was really hard to like write it down since I wasn't even used to like saying it or saying what happened to me, like to write it down and give that paper to someone to read again, felt incredibly like embarrassing. And, and I wish I didn't feel embarrassed about that because it wasn't my fault, but they granted the emergency protective order, but they needed to serve the papers and they were having a difficult time finding him. I remember it was uh, Easter weekend. Was it Easter? I don't fucking know. It wasn't Easter, I don't think. It was a weekend, a long weekend. And so um, one of my best friends, Katie, uh, brought me to Somerset. To That's where her family is from. Um, they were going to go on their boat for the weekend and just have a good weekend. And she decided to let me tag along since I was going through so much shit. She was there, like right there with me through everything. And I'm incredibly appreciative of her for that. Um so we went out for the weekend and I remember scrolling through Instagram and I was like, I knew he was going to do something crazy when he was served the papers. Like I thought he was just going to post the papers to Instagram, but he ended up um, posting a video of him getting served the papers. And I wish I, one thing I regret to this day is not screen recording that fucking video. He embarrassed himself so badly. This, this, uh, I think it's the sheriff's office that serves you. Um, but this female, um, deputy serves in the papers and she's literally just like reading off his like rights or whatever, like reading him something and like handing him the papers. And he's like, police brutality. Um, you're not allowed to do this. If I say, I'm not going to accept it. You can't serve me like lie, like making stuff up. Like she doesn't know how to do her job. Um, and she just like remained cool, calm and collected, um, and served from the papers, obviously, but he like put this whole video up. Like, I don't, I don't know what he thought was going to come of it, but, um, he eventually deleted it. Uh, and that brought back a lot of emotion because like, Jesus Christ, how embarrassing is it that I was with this person? Um, and they're literally a psycho. Um, so because he was served that emergency protective order, we were then given a court date. I anticipated that he wasn't going to show up or that he was going to show up with the lawyer and neither one of those happened. He showed up by himself. Now, let me tell you how fucked up our justice system is. Um, at least in Lexington, Kentucky at that time, I hope that it has changed. But when you go to the the, the courtroom, it's like op 
open court, like public court. So like they, I guess everybody who has that a court date, um, a domestic violence like situation, like emergency protective order court date of that day comes in at the same time and they just like rattle off the list. And like, and so everybody's like watching everyone else who has a case after it's like watching your case. They're all sitting in the courtroom. But when they lined us up outside of the courtroom before going in, the abusers were like five feet away from the victims. It was the most fucked up thing I have ever seen in my life. And so I was terrified because he was over there like staring at me and my friend, my friend came, my friend Katie came with me. Um, so I was terrified. I can't imagine how terrified those other women were as well. Our, my case was the last one of the day and, um, there were still people, a lot of people sitting in the courtroom because, um, I actually don't know why, but there were still people sitting in the courtroom that had cases that were previously seen. Um, and thus far, no one made a huge fool of themselves. I mean, obviously there, there were abusers there, but they didn't do anything fucking crazy thus far, but guess what had to happen when me and my ex had to go up there? the craziest thing of the entire day so we go up there you know I think I'm I was talking first I don't know but I remember like trying to talk and my jaw was shaking so badly I was crying so hard that like I couldn't get my jaw to stop shaking and I could barely talk um and this motherfucker over there he's talking about how I'm a liar and I'm mad because he got another girlfriend I don't even fucking know I didn't know that you had another girlfriend I didn't care um and so he's just going off. And of course, I have a folder of my documents and I had the documents of uh, my injuries that I had sustained over the years from him physically abusing me. I had uh, text messages printed out um, of him admitting that he hit me. Um, and I also had the emails between me and the officer um, and I also, I had the email that he sent when he hacked my email. And so I had them all in different colors. So I was showing her, so she didn't have to like take a lot of time to read through them. So I had the officers highlighted in blue and like mine highlighted in green and then the hacked email highlighted in red. And before I could even say it, she reads it and she goes, this is not the same person. She said, it's not even written like the same person. And then he goes, you know, people write differently when they're upset. And then I said, why would I say that I lied to the officer and they also come to court like did I lie or didn't I um so obviously the judge didn't believe him so when it was clear that it wasn't going to go his way this motherfucker stands up and starts calling her sexist she shouldn't she should not have a job she's a shitty she's a shitty um judge she always ruled he saw her ruling on the all the women's sides like she's sexist she's not adequate to be a judge and she's like you sit down and be quiet before i locked lock you up in contempt of court and he goes do it i about fell out um and so obviously they're like is that what you call them bailiffs they come up arrest him and even the other fucking abusers their jaws on the floor i'm like this guy is so bad that you got other mother evil motherfuckers back there with their jaw on the floor like you've got to be kidding me and so as much as I was like really embarrassed about that, I was happy that he showed his true colors in court because um, they got to really see that I was dealing with somebody scary and dangerous.
So a few days after he got locked up in contempt of court, he calls me and tells me how I'm ruining his life and I got him locked up. Um, you know, typical abuser shit, but I was not under his control anymore. I knew it wasn't my fault. I knew I didn't get him locked up. His big ass mouth and his evil heart got him locked up. Um, and I hung up the phone. I, I wasn't going to call the police on him then um, because I still had a little bit of sympathy for him just as a human existing on the same planet as, as me. Um so I didn't call the police on him then um, because I could have had him arrested for contacting me after that uh, protective order was put in place. Um, so he left me alone for a few days and then he contacted me again. Um, and when I tried to end that conversation, he threatened to kill himself. And so he knew that that was the thing that kind of like got me. But n- no, no more. Um, I told him. I just said, okay, and I hung up the phone. I proceeded to call 911 and and told them his address and that they needed to send an ambulance and police officers to the address because someone has weapons and they are threatening to end their own life. And I also have an emergency protective order out against them, and so they shouldn't have been contacting me in the first place. And I never heard from him again. I know he still is alive, but after that, I never heard from him directly. So that is just sort of honestly a cliff nose version of uh, my experience with domestic violence and, and what I went through for the later part of my teens and my early 20s. I feel like a chunk of my life was taken from me. Um, and at 27, I'm still still trying to move forward. Um, the effects that that had on me are lasting and I will have to continue to be intentional Um, about healing for the rest of my life Um, and so that brings up a lot of feelings of resentment Um, and I grapple with the idea of forgiveness a lot because I want to try my best to be a good person and by all means one of the characteristics of good people is is the ability to forgive Um, but I don't think that I have the ability to forgive him I like I said I hold a lot of resentment for him and what he put me through and sometimes I wish that I would have actually like hurt him back and I know that sounds really bad but um it's a really difficult thing to deal with when somebody wishes you harm and it tries to end your life pretty much um it's hard to not want to hurt them as well. And as the years pass, um, I found myself just getting more and more angry um, at the situation and what happened to me. And that sort of brings up the question, do we have to forgive people um, to heal or be good people ourselves? And to me, the answer to that question is no. I don't think that we have to forgive people who have wronged us very deeply for us to heal. in the beginning stages of my healing, I had an, a tremendous amount of triggers. Um, there were streets I couldn't go on. There were things I couldn't eat. There were stores I couldn't go into or else I would be triggered. Um, but I have worked on that throughout the years and I don't have very many um, triggers. And I don't really think about the situation like consciously much. Um, like I said, I do have long lasting psychological trauma and like PTSD from that but as far as me thinking about it I I don't and forgiveness is not going to cure my PTSD um so 
because I don't think it takes up that much mental space consciously, um, that's one reason I do not think that I need to forgive my abuser in order to um, heal or in order to be a good person. Um, in reality, if if I saw my abuser within a stone's throw of me, um, I don't think that it would be pretty for him. And to release that anger, I don't think I have to forgive him. But who I do think I have to forgive is myself. Um, I have to stop blaming myself for what happened because as much as like in the grand scheme, I know it wasn't my fault. You are indoctrinated and programmed when you are abused um, to think that these things are your fault, to think about, well, what could I, I have done differently to make him not hit me? What could I have done differently to make him not do this? Um, and I often find myself looking back and thinking, well, what could I have done? When could I have left earlier than when I did? Like, what could I have done differently? Um, and I think once I fully um, understand that it wasn't my fault is when the healing can start. But I don't think that I have to extend him any grace um, and give any forgiveness to him, put any good energy out there towards him um, at all to um, keep on in my healing journey. So I feel like we can think of forgiveness as far as like with the loan. Like, so say my ex was a borrower who took out a loan and I'm the the lender. Um, And he, it was decided that he could not fulfill the terms of his loan. Why would I give him the grace of, of forgiving that loan? That means that I'm like erasing it from history, like acting like it didn't happen. Or I'm letting him off the hook right I'm, I'm saying like you know it's okay that you couldn't fulfill it like we're just gonna we're we're gonna call it good um I'm gonna reserve that forgiveness for myself and I'd rather think of um it like I'm writing off the loan I know that he will never be able to fulfill the terms of the agreement that was set in the beginning so I'm just gonna write it off um he I still acknowledge that there was some sort of agreement in the beginning, said or unsaid, um, a basic agreement that you don't physically uh, hit other people. You don't hit people that you love. You don't um, manipulate people. Um, and he couldn't fulfill the terms of, of that agreement. Um, so I choose to write it off. I choose to acknowledge that he was inadequate enough. Um, he was, I choose to, to, to acknowledge that he wasn't adequate enough to fulfill those terms. And, and in writing, that loan will always exist. I'm not going to forgive it. Um, like I said, I choose to extend that forgiveness for myself. I deserve the clean slate. Um, I deserve the forgiveness for letting myself go through that. I think that uh, you don't have to forgive abusers or people who deeply wronged you, but you can write off that debt. And I do think that that makes it uh, a little bit easier. Another thing besides forgiveness that I struggle with is guilt. Um, I am unfortunately aware of how many women do not make it out of abusive situations. Um, it is incredibly dangerous to be in and, and your life is at risk every moment that you are in an abusive relationship or or geographically near your abuser and so I struggle with guilt why did I make it out but there are millions of women who didn't um what was so special about me that my life was spared but um unfortunately some people lost their lives um, so even being able to tell my story I see that as a privilege um to just 
continue to exist. Um, I see that as a privilege and we can do a lot with um, our privileges in certain areas. And so I choose to acknowledge the fact that it is a privilege that I'm alive to tell the story. And um, if me telling the story can save even one life, that is is enough for me to have been this vulnerable um, on camera and on microphone. Um, So I hope that through my story, people can see warning signs for themselves and for people that they care about. Um, And I hope that um, I can help save someone. Um, I also kind of want to reference friends and family of people being abused. Uh, Friends and family are a pivotal and crucial, they play a pivotal and crucial role in um, aiding in uh, the cycle of abuse and sort of ending that cycle of abuse. But I think that friends and family need to be incredibly strategic and intentional about how and where they place that help because it's not a matter of if this person is this abuser is going to end the victim's life, it's when it's a ticking time bomb. Um, and I believe through and through I don't think there's anybody that's going to convince me otherwise that if you are an abuser and you're going to put your hands on somebody else you would not hesitate to end their life um for victims or previous victims survivors I want you to know that you're not alone um and it's not an embarrassing thing you shouldn't be embarrassed by what you went through we all find ourselves in situations that we never thought that we would be in and we find ourselves in situations where we don't know how we're going to get out of and if you if you have the support system um i encourage you to reach out because it's incredibly important um to your safety and your life um that you uh get out as quickly as you can and i want you to know that even when you can't see a way out there is a way out and even if you're if you're moving blindly, um, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There is, there's always a way out. And there may be regressions um, in your feelings and in the situation. I know there was plenty of times throughout the situation where I thought I was going to leave or I said I was going to leave. And I, I started to feel bad for him or like he convinced me that it was never going to happen again or that he loves me. Um, and I don't want you to feel ashamed if that's something that you have gone through or that you are currently going through. I don't want you to feel bad about yourself for that because that's the whole point. That's that's what they do. They manipulate you to stay. So undoubtedly there will be regressions in your journey. Um, and I don't want that to discourage you from continuing to take those steps forward. And lastly, um, anybody, like I said, who's a victim or survivor, I promise you, you have fight left in you. There is a world out here beyond that. There's a beautiful world with opportunities, people that won't hurt you. Um, there's life, there's love, there's happiness after abuse. Um, there is a chance to be a new you after abuse. The person that I was before um, I was in a domestic violence situation is not the person I am now. Um, I'm drastically different. I am forever changed because I was abused. And while I, I wish that it didn't happen, I would not be even close to the woman I am today had it not. Um, and so if that can just encourage anybody to continue to fight, um, then I would have done my job here. Like I said, I am forever changed and forever transformed. But had I not decided to take that step out and had I not 
decided that I was worth the fight, I'm not sure that I would be here speaking to you all right now. Like I said before, if you are a victim um, currently going through this, you've got you've got to fight for your life. You are worth so much more than what someone is putting you through. And there's a whole life for you to live outside of that. Um, and it's it, it's great out here. So, um, yeah, uh, I don't I didn't want to cry too much on this. So I tried my best. Um, but I'm starting to see that. Uh, I'm getting incredibly emotional, so I, I'm going to choose to end this year. I appreciate you all for listening, um, and I just wanted to say if you or anyone that you know um, are in or possibly in uh, a situation where they are encountering domestic violence, uh, visit www.thehotline.org, and that is the domestic violence hotline Um And there are plenty of resources on there to find um, help to get you or your family member and loved one out of a tough situation.